0: You guys can turn to Psalm chapter 19. I'm excited to get to teach Psalm 19 to you. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. All of us pastors were kind of competing to see who would get to preach what Psalm. The good news for me is I controlled the Word document where we recorded our preferences. So I got what I wanted, which is Psalm 19. I love this Psalm. C.S. Lewis liked to say that Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in the songs and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It's beautiful chapter of the Bible. So we're going to look at Psalm 19 to kind of help frame this for you so you understand what David is trying to do for us in this psalm. I'll tell you a little story. When I was in elementary school, I made a grave error. I watched the movie Jaws when I wasn't yet old enough for it to handle it. And so it scared me really, really badly, so bad that I couldn't sleep in my room at night, because every time we would turn the lights off, even though I knew factually that I'm in my room, I would begin to fear that by some strange magic, I'm all of a sudden in the ocean. And then you start second-guessing yourself and thinking that maybe the mattress is starting to move around a little bit and maybe you're starting to hear things like something chasing you in the water and I had to turn the lights back on. And my parents were really gracious because they knew that, that darkness feeds our fears. And so they let me sleep for a few nights with the closet light on. It wasn't enough light to keep me awake, but it was enough that I could see I'm still in my room. What I learned on that night is that light drives away our fears because it gives us courage. It, it gives us peace. Light has a way of doing that. It drives out the darkness that feeds our fears. It gives us courage. It gives us peace. That's actually why many ancient cultures worshipped things that gave light, like the sun and the moon and the stars. They worshipped them as gods because they gave light that that drove away the darkness with all its fear and unknowns. Well, they were right to celebrate the light. They were wrong to worship it. The sun and moon are not gods. They are gifts given to us. By God. We're to worship the giver of light and that's what Psalm 19 is about. It is a song of worship to the giver of light. God who gives us light, both literal light and spiritual light. So we're going to jump into this psalm. The first half of Psalm 19 is about how God has given us literal light in his world. In this world that we inhabit, God is revealing literal light to us. Look with me at the beginning of Psalm 19. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, and we should pause there for a moment. You you need to notice those details at the beginning of a psalm because it tells you how God designed that chapter to be used. So it's written by David. That's interesting, but more interesting is the fact that it says it's for the choir director, Which means this was not just a a chapter of writing. It is actually a song. These are lyrics. So in ancient Israel, these would be the words that would be up on the PowerPoint screen when you're singing. If there was such a thing as PowerPoint 3,000 years ago. Okay, so this is a song that leads God's people to celebrate him as the giver of light. So verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now there's some churchy words there, the heavens, that that sounds a little too spiritual to, to really wrap our minds around. In Hebrew, it's actually a very simple word. It means sky all david's talking about when you walk outside of a building and look up that's the sky it's the it's the sun and the clouds by day it's the moon and the stars by night david is saying that when you walk outside and look up the sky is revealing the glory of god but there's another churchy word glory what does that mean we just sang about it a few moments ago Well, I've I've thought about that for many, many years, and and the easiest definition that I have landed on is that the glory of God is simply the revelation of God's goodness and greatness. God's glory is, is his declaration to us of how good and how great he is. Now, let's be clear. God is good and great, whether we know that or not, but God wants us to know him. And so he shares, he declares his goodness and greatness to us. That's that's what his glory is. It is the disclosure of God to us so that we can get to know God and love God. So here's an analogy for you to help put this together in your mind. Glory is to God as light is to the sun. Glory is to God as light is to the sun. How do you know the sun? Well, you don't actually have any direct experience of the sun. You cannot walk on the sun. You cannot touch the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away from you. So, how do you know the sun? By its light. These photons of energy that travel 93 million miles and strike your eyes or your skin. That is how you experience the sun. That's the glory of God. You can't touch God. You can't hug God, at least not yet. You experience the transcendent creator of the universe through his glory. His glory is him sharing his love, his joy, his power, his patience with you so that you can experience him and get to know him. So the glory of God is, is the revelation of God to you so that you can see and behold how good and how great he is. And what David wants you to understand is that this world is designed to reveal to us, to share with us God's goodness and greatness so that we can experience him and get to know him. And in particular, it's the sun and the moon, David says, that reveal the glory of God to us. That's a theme David camps on here in psalm 19 he returns to it later in the chapter if you look about halfway through verse 4 he says in them he has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber it rejoices as a strong man to run his course its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat David personifies the sun. He describes the sun as a strong man running from horizon to horizon. That's a common way in the ancient world of describing the sun. Many cultures talked about the sun as a strong man running from horizon to horizon every day. But in most of those cultures, they worship the sun as a God. David doesn't do that. David says that the sun is just another piece of creation that reveals to us the power of God. And that's what the sun is designed to do. That is the ultimate function of the sun is to reveal to you the power of your God. Because let's think about it for a moment. We can't even look straight at it, right? You, you can't even look at it. And yet God made that. And so how, how what exactly did God make? How, how much power is it revealing to you? Fortunately, science has come along in the last few thousand years to reveal a lot to us about the sun. It's big. First of all, you probably know that already. 109 times the diameter of earth and it's very, very hot. It is emitting the same amount of energy at all times as one trillion hydrogen bombs all the time. That's what's going off in the sun. And what's fascinating is that our sun is one of just 100 billion suns in this one galaxy. And this one galaxy is one of just anywhere from 2 to 10 trillion galaxies, each with on average 100 billion suns in them. And yet God created all of them and we can't even look at one of them. The purpose of the sun is to show you how powerful and magnificent your God is. It reveals his power to everyone on earth. That's why David said towards the end of what we read, there is nothing hidden from its heat. Everyone on earth can behold the the heat of the sun. Even those who are blind, who cannot see the sun with their eyes, they can feel the sun. On their skin. They can feel its energy from 93 million miles away and realize how powerful their God is. So the sun is designed to reveal to us the power of God. All of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it teaches us about God. And, and Paul talks about that in the book of Romans chapter 1. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul's point is that creation is designed to teach you specific things about the creator. So particularly in this verse, you learn that he exists and you learn that he's powerful simply by by spending time in creation. It is teaching you things about God. So I hope that there have been times in your life when you've stopped long enough to get into creation and see what it is telling you about your God. I hope there's been moments when you've just learned about the creator from his creation. I, I don't do that nearly often enough, but there have been those times in my life when when I have paused and gotten into God's world and learned about him from it. And so I'm going to share with you five of the most significant lessons I've learned about God simply through creation, just by spending time in his world. First, I learned how big God is by looking at the night sky above the maroon bells in Colorado. So this is kind of around central Colorado. You hike in, it's many, many miles. You hike into this valley at the base of the maroon bells, 214ers, beautiful mountains. And as beautiful as the mountains in the valley are, they're nothing compared to, to the sky you see when the sun goes down. Because the sun goes down and you look up and you see David's sky, which you cannot see on much of this planet anymore. It's a sky that's completely unpolluted by human light. There's no artificial lights anywhere around. So you look up and you see more stars than you could possibly count. This photo can't come close to doing it justice. And you look up and see these uh, uncountable stars and, and you pause for a moment and you realize that some of those stars are not actually stars. Some of those pricks of light are entire galaxies, each with 100 billion stars of their own. And you look and you recognize that you're just looking with your naked eye. And so there's countless stars behind those stars that are too dim for you to see. And you reflect on that for a moment. And then you turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God is telling us that that he knows by name and commands the location and the movement of every star and there are something like 10 trillion times 100 billion stars in this universe and God knows and commands them all and here I am. I can't even remember the names of all the people who work with me at this one church and yet God knows the name of every star in existence. And what that shows to me is how much bigger God is than me. I see how infinitely greater God is than me simply by looking at the stars above the mountains of the maroon bells. Second lesson came to me while scuba diving off the coast of Cozumel. I got to do that a couple times in the course of my life, both times back in college. And and from scuba diving, I learned that our God loves variety. So went scuba diving. And for me, it was a very worshipful experience. You feel encased, in a sense, by the water deep down. And everything is, is very still and very hushed. And you look out and you see these, these coral reefs and these fish. And, and they are bright. Everyone knows that. They're very colorful. But, but what's amazing is the diversity of the color. Because God could have just said, there's a piece of coral. Boom. Replicate that. There you go. He could have just said, here is a bright, pretty tropical fish. OK, replicate that. But he didn't. Instead, he created thousands of different colors and varieties of coral and tens of thousands of varieties of tropical fish. And and within one species of tropical fish, every single individual is unique. There's no two identical angelfish on this planet. And so from scuba diving, I learned that our God loves Diversity. He does not like homogenous people any more than he likes homogenous fish. He loves diversity in his creation and in his church. So that's the second lesson I learned. Third lesson I learned was from Texas Sunsets. They taught me that our God loves beauty simply for the sake of beauty. Think about it for a moment. What is the function of a sunset? I'm an engineer by training, so I always think about what's the function of something. As best I can tell nothing there's there's no reason that the sky needs to look like that for your life to function or for this planet to function no it simply looks like that because god thinks it's good for it to look like that and so you go out and you look at these sunsets that are there in the sky for no particular function and you compare them to the greatest artwork any human being has ever come up with and nothing can compare God is the greatest artist there ever was. He's also the most prolific because think about it. You're not just getting one sunset a night. No, every sunset is different every moment and from every point of reference. So if you wait five minutes, you get a new sunset. If you drive five miles down the road, you get a new sunset. And let's recognize the fact that the sun is actually setting somewhere on the earth all the time. So this is artwork that has been going on since the dawn of our planet. God is creating art at all times. It's more beautiful than any art any human has ever created. And he's doing it for no function other than he loves beautiful things. Our God loves beauty for the sake of beauty. Learn that from sunsets in the Texas sky. Fourth lesson I learned. Julie and I love growing things. We have a garden. We grow tomatoes. We grow green bell peppers. I actually love watching these things grow. I learn from watching survival of the fittest at work in my garden that our God is incredibly wise. I actually get a kick out of watching um, plants grow and seeing which ones grow. It, it's kind of hard for my wife. She, she feels sad when anything dies, but she'll she'll plant all these seeds, like bell pepper seeds in one pot, and the goal is to see which You know which one does best and you select it. And so we'll watch this pot and I'll watch them come up and I'll watch nature at work. I'll watch survival of the fittest at work and only the best of that particular species will thrive and the rest will die off. And I love that because I look at that as a human engineer and I say, what engineer has ever designed a feature better than survival of the fittest? I mean, really, that's incredible that life is always adapting and evolving to improve itself. What iPhone improves itself? What car redesigns itself? No human engineer could ever come up with a feature as amazing as survival of the fittest. God has designed something magnificent in life, constantly improving, constantly adapting and evolving to do better. What an amazingly wise God we serve. Best engineer ever. Fifth lesson I've learned from spending time in God's world. I've learned that God loves fun. I learned that by watching ocean watching whales breach in the Atlantic Ocean. Julie and I, for our 10th wedding anniversary, we got to go up to Maine um, and we went off the coast and we watched whales feeding and breaching, and it's beautiful to watch. It's amazing. But it's particularly exciting if you look at a verse in the book of Psalms, Psalm 104. Verses 25 and 26. Over here is the deep wide sea, which teems with innumerable swimming creatures, living things both small and large. The ships travel there and over here swims the whale you made to play in it. What is the function of a whale? Well, according to God, the function of a whale is to play all day. Why? Because God loves fun. He loves to make these massive creatures to jump out of the ocean and splash. And he looks down at that and says, that is good play is good. Fun is good. As last week was Father's Day, my kids got me cards. My son got me this card where you you kind of fill in the blanks. And one of them said, um, my favorite thing about my dad is blank. And as I read that, I was hoping it would say like how he loves me or how he teaches me, how he is kind to me, something really deep like that. Instead, it said when he plays with me. And I was disappointed at first because playtime seems childish and immature. And then I had to prepare this sermon and I read that verse and I thought, who's the childish one here? It's not my son. He's got it right. God loves play. So why am I always so serious? That's not God. God loves fun for the sake of fun. All these things we learn just by beholding God's creation. It is constantly teaching us about him, about what he is like. So from God's world, we learn about him. It is revealing things about himself to us at all times. So look again with me. Psalm chapter 19, verse 2. David says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge god's world is constantly telling us about himself day to day night to night it means that god's world is speaking to the human race 24 7 365 all the time god's world is telling us about him but that begs a question okay if god's world is always speaking to humanity about god about how good he is and great he is then why isn't everyone worshiping him If all human beings on this planet can see God's goodness and greatness in creation, then why aren't all of us worshiping him? And the answer, David tells us, is because the only way to hear creation's voice is to have the right attitude. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Verse four, their line, which is actually better translated voice, their voice has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. This is a paradox because the two verses seem to be saying exactly the opposite things. Verse three, there's no speech. Verse four, there is speech and it's gone everywhere. What is David doing? Well, he's telling you that creation speaks but in a way that requires you to pay attention. If all you do is walk outside and go about your life, you'll never hear it because it's not speaking audibly where you can just passively receive what it is saying. No, when you go outside, you have to look for its voice. You have to pay attention to hear what it's saying about God. The unfortunate thing is that so few people actually pay attention So many people just go through their day-to-day lives without ever stopping and looking up and hearing and seeing what God's world is saying to them. And that's a bigger problem in our day than David's day because we are surrounded by all of these screens. Beautiful works of human ingenuity, beautiful things that can display so much content. And even look at that, we've got pictures of creation on these screens. We've got the ocean on the left, we've got the night sky on the right, and they're, they're beautiful, but you do realize that's, that's not actually the ocean on the left, and that's not actually the night sky on the right. The, those are just artificial representations of what God has made, and that's the root of the problem. We have allowed artificial wonder to replace supernatural wonder. We've allowed ourselves to become fixated with our own creations instead of God's creation. And we suffer as a result because as beautiful as the things we make are, the things God makes are far more beautiful and they teach us about him. Our devices just teach us about us. His creation reveals him to us. Now, the challenge, though, is that our devices scream for our attention. His creation doesn't our creations they they ring and they flash and they vibrate and they constantly cry for our attention whereas his creation is quiet most of the time it never screams at you unless there's like a thunderstorm or tornado and you need to like shelter in place most of the time creation is quiet just waits for you to pay attention Well, that's why it's so easy to miss what creation is saying. It's easy to miss the sunset because you're watching the game. It's easy to miss miss the blooming flowers because you're scrolling Facebook. It's easy to miss the sound of birds in the morning because you're listening to music in your headphones. Now, there's nothing wrong with watching the game or checking out Facebook or listening to music. But if that's all you ever do, your life will be so shallow. Shallow. Because you will have allowed yourself to become fixated with artificial wonder instead of beholding the supernatural wonder of God's world. So my challenge for you this summer is just to take some time to set the screen down and turn the music off and go out into God's world and hear what he's saying. So go out into creation See the revelation of God in his world. A few practical ideas for you. I really, I encourage you. Sunsets are a big deal to me. That's kind of been a thing in my life. I encourage you to find some time this summer when you just go look at the sun setting. And I encourage you not to do it for like five seconds and then boom, you're back to the TV. Like watch it for five minutes. Watch how it changes constantly. No human creates art like that. Okay, so so, enjoy the sunset. Just make a cup of tea and go outside. Watch the sunset. Um, I encourage you sometime, especially if you have kids, um, use a pickup truck or borrow a pickup truck. Take the kids out to the country. And then when you get out there, go out to the bed of the pickup truck. Take some blankets with you and put the blankets down in the bed. Get out there around 830 or 9 o'clock. Have everybody lay down and look up and just tell your kids to count the stars. Now, you got to go somewhere outside of the light dome of Bryan College Station, go out towards Iola or something like that. Just get out there and look at the sky and your kids will begin to learn how big God is. Uh, another idea, many of you will travel at some point this summer and where do we Texans go? We usually go to either the mountains or the beach. So if you do that, that's great. I encourage you, please set aside a little bit of time for yourself, even if you're a parent, get a little bit of time alone and just go sit in front of either the mountains or the ocean, and think about how small you are. Because if you get in front of the mountains, and they're beautiful, big mountains. We're going to go to Colorado this summer, and it's fun to look at the mountains and think about how big they are, and then remember that according to the Bible, they don't even count as a grain of sand in the palm of your God. And if you go to the ocean, it's the same thing. Go to the ocean and look out at the ocean and realize you're not seeing even a hundredth of the entire ocean, and yet the Bible tells us that all the oceans of the earth are not even a drop of water in the hand of your God. So think about how big he is and how small you are. Creation will teach you that. So spend time in God's world this summer. The world is designed to show us who our God is, to tell us how good and how great he is. Now the psalm changes because David moves on to an even greater form of revelation. As wonderful as God's world is, it is not as great as his word. God's word teaches us more about him than his world does look with me starting in verse 7 David says the law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether, they are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. David does something really interesting here that you don't catch in English, but you do in Hebrew. The first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 7, or verses 1 through 6, he only refers to God by name one time. It's in verse 1. And when he does, he uses the Hebrew word El. That's the the Hebrew generic term for a deity. So any nation's God would be known as El. It just means God, a God. Well, that's because creation reveals God to you in generic ways. Creation can tell you things about God, but it cannot tell you who your particular God is. It's too general. You need more information to know your particular God. That's why, starting in verse 7, until the end of the chapter, David switches the words he uses. From that point on, he refers to God by his personal name, Yahweh. So L versus Yahweh, it would be like saying there's a guy preaching on the stage versus Blake Jennings is preaching on the stage. A guy could be any guy. Blake Jennings is me, particularly. So David is telling you, creation, it reveals God to you in general words. It's good to know, but you don't know enough. The word reveals God to you specifically a particular God. The word tells you it's not, it's not Allah, it's not Vishnu, it is Yahweh, the God of this book, the father of Jesus Christ. He is the creator, revealing himself to you in his world. So God's word sheds more light than God's world because it reveals God in particular, our God. And what exactly is the word telling us? Well, when David wrote this, this psalm, His entire Bible was just the first five books of your Bible called the law. Just that's all he had at that time. And he said that those first five books are are enough to to tell you everything you need to know about your God. In particular, look at verse seven. That's enough to restore the soul. That means preserve the life. The the word of God keeps you alive and protects you. Second, it, it makes wise the simple. The word of God can make even the most naive person wise. It rejoices the heart. The word of God creates joy in you so that you can enjoy this life. To the fullest. The Word of God, it enlightens the eyes. It helps you to see the world as it truly is and yourself as you truly are. You skip down. The Word of God is more desirable than gold. This book is the most valuable thing you possess. It is more powerful in your life and more able to bring about success and thriving in your life than any amount of money or possessions. This book is the most valuable thing. That you have. And what David wants us, I think, to understand. And we need to just face this fact. According to our culture, this book is a burden. It's a burden because it restricts us. And it's full of all of these rules that prohibit everything fun. And all it does is make you live this very structured and restricted life. What David wants to understand is it's actually exactly the opposite This book is not a burden. This book is a blessing because this book reveals to you definitively how you can enjoy the best possible life now and forever. This book tells you how to to bring about good in your life and for other people and how to avoid evil in your life and for other people. It's not a burden. It helps you to find your best life. This book reveals how to walk in blessing, how to walk in joy. Do you think God wants you, by giving you this book, to live a miserable life? Remember, this is a God who created a whole type of living thing just to play in the ocean all day. You think he wants you to live a miserable existence? No. He wants you to know joy true lasting joy and happiness comes through this book. It's designed to help you live the best possible life. I'm from an engineering background. I'm a car guy from my background. And so I think of this book similar to like an owner's manual when you buy a car and there's this little book in the glove box and very few people read it. I always do. I read it from cover to cover. I love them. Why? Because they're full of rules and those rules are not a burden to me. Because those rules are written by engineers and those engineers say things like change your oil every 5,000 miles. And some people look at that and say what a burden. I mean that's going to cost me time. That's going to cost me money. What a pain. I look at that and say what a blessing. Because if I obey that rule I don't have to buy a new engine 30,000 miles from now. They know what they're doing. They have shed light on how I can use this thing I've just bought in the best possible way so that I can enjoy it to the full. That's the Bible. God has given you life. He wants you to enjoy it to the full. And so He has given you an instruction manual. It shows you how to live a life that is full of blessing. It's not a burden. David says of the word of God in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And What this verse is picturing is that the human race without the Bible is trying to go through life like you're trying to walk through your living room in pitch black at night. And when you do that, if you walk through your living room in the pitch black and it's the middle of the night, you're going to stub your shin on the coffee tables of life at some point. God doesn't want you to do that. And so he gives you a light so that you're never walking through life in the dark. Your light is his word. It reveals to you the the fullest, the richest, the most satisfying life now and forever. So God is merciful and gracious. He shares light with us. He does not want us to go through life in the dark. So he reveals light to us in his world and in his word. And, And when we spend time in his world and in his word, here's the result. Look at the end of the psalm, starting in verse 12. David says... Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When David spends time in God's light, the result is conviction. And it's always so. When we spend time in the light of God's world and word, when you spend time in that light, it helps you to see how sinful you are and how great God is. And when you see how great God is and how not great you are, the the right response is confession. You get on the knees before God and you say, God, you are so great. I am so not. And David, in in this act of humility, he says, equip me of hidden faults. He's saying, God, I don't even know how wrong I am. I am so wrong. I'm not even aware of half of it. Please, God, forgive me and protect me from sin. Deliver me from sin. Now, we know something David didn't. David couldn't even imagine this yet. God had a plan in place. All the way back when David wrote this, 3,000 years ago, God already had a plan in place to deliver us from sin once and for all. And ironically, it was through the descendant of this man. David couldn't imagine that. One of his own descendants, 1,000 years after himself, would be born a man named Jesus, descendant of David, who was both fully man and fully God. He would be the one and only human being to never need to pray what David says in verses 12 and 13, because Jesus never sinned. He's the only one who had no hidden faults, no visible faults, no faults of any kind. He lived a perfect life, and because he lived a perfect life, he deserved glory and honor. But instead, he traded that glory and honor for pain. He gave up glory and honor so that he could die in our place. He took. All of our sin, all of our faults, both known and hidden upon himself. And he died in our place and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And it's important to recognize for just a moment that the guy dying on the cross 2,000 years ago is the same guy who created 10 trillion times 100 billion stars by the word of his mouth. He is that powerful, that omniscient, and yet he chose to die in the place of small, weak, fallible creatures like us. He died and he rose so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to merit it. You just have to say yes. God, I believe you, the creator of heaven and earth, you died for me. And then you rose from the dead so I could be forgiven and have eternal life as a free gift. If you have said yes to that gift, if you have received eternal life through faith, then what we're going to do in a moment is pray for the people in our lives who are still searching who are still trying to find forgiveness, trying to find peace, trying to find hope because they don't yet know Jesus or, or they just haven't come to the point where they're able to believe in Jesus yet. I want us to pray and I'm going to open us and then I'm going to give you a minute of silence and during that silence I want you to pray by name for people in your life who are still searching who haven't yet said yes to Jesus, I want you to picture their faces. I want you to think about them. I want you to pray that God would open their eyes this week to see his light in his world and in his word. And I want you to pray that God would have the grace to use you to tell them about Jesus this week. So join me. Let's pray for those who are still searching for the light. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are the God who gives light. You are the God who has not left us in the dark. Instead, you have declared light to us in your world and in your word and most of all in your son, Jesus. We look to Jesus and we praise you that he, the creator of all, chose to die for us and rise from the dead so that we could have life eternal. We thank you for that gift, Lord, but we cry out to you for those in our lives who haven't yet received that gift, who are still searching for light, still searching for forgiveness, still searching for peace and hope. We pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts so that they can hear your voice in your world and in your word. We pray, Lord, that they would come to see how good and how great you are. We pray that you would use each of us this week to reveal to them the good news of Jesus. Help us to be your witnesses, declaring to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift up each of these people to you now. Heavenly Father, we plead for the souls of these men and women who are still seeking something that you have already provided, who are seeking in vain to find meaning and purpose and hope when it is already provided through your son Jesus, we pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts so that they would be willing to receive forgiveness and life and peace and hope and purpose as a gift. We pray, Heavenly Father, use us. We pray that you would work in our lives so that we would be light to the world just as you are the ultimate light to the world. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection, for our sins and our place so that we can have life. We pray all this for his glory and renown. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.